0: This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the cxmh podcast with robert vore and steve austin cxmh is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health
1: all right welcome to the show this week i am here as always joined by my co-host uh, I tried to think of a funny name on the fly and I couldn't do it.
2: <laughs> well, I'm here either way. Oh, how funny!
1: Uh, Steve Austin, everybody. This is see. Last time I had it, like I thought of it ahead of time when I made a funny name for you. So. Sure,
2: Wing increment. Yeah.
1: Uh, oh well, yeah. maybe next time.
2: It's hey, all good.
1: We have a fantastic guest today. Well, first, how are you doing? I'm sorry, that's rude of me. How are you doing? Man,
2: you know what? I'm good. I'm sitting here. Um, with my little princess. Caroline is home uh, sick today, and so she is sitting right next to me at my uh, my at-home studio, which right now is the kitchen table. And uh, She's having a little popsicle trying to make herself feel better. Carrie, you want to say hello? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna happen.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, how are you, my friend? Yeah, I'm good. I'm excited. Last week's episode, because we're weekly now, So that's that's fantastic. Last week's episode was so good with Science Mike. uh, Got some good feedback from that one. So excited about this week, which is Jason Michelli, which we'll get to in, in a second here. And then we have just some fantastic things coming up the next few weeks. That I'm really excited about Uh, not going to name drop all of them, but I think. Well, let's name drop
2: next week though, because I'm so excited that I like, oh, my goodness. I was going to say,
1: I think you've been dropping some hints online about next week's.
2: Next week is Paul Young, author of The Shack. He's also written Crossroads, which is another fantastic book, Eve, and his brand new book, Lies We Believe About God. I cannot wait. The Shack changed my life. I've read it four times now. I've given it to I don't know how many people. It is so good. You've got to hear this. We're going to talk maybe not as much about mental health, but we're going to talk a lot about suffering. And actually, we get into that in this episode with Jason Michelli uh, this week as well. We're going to talk about suffering and finding God in the middle of all that. So uh, this week and next week, both fantastic.
1: It's going to be fantastic. That'll come out uh, next week, just in time for the Shaq movie, actually. So we'll talk about that some as well. But before we get ahead of ourselves, this week is also an awesome guest, Jason Michelli. So funny, but so genuine. He's the author of the book, Cancer is Funny, Keeping Faith in Stage Serious Chemo. And this episode is is just awesome.
2: And he is also one of the co-hosts of the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast, uh, which is a great show, especially for uh, clergy folks. All the co-hosts are um, clergy of some kind, and it's a great show too.
1: Yeah. Well, last week our intro was super long because we had a lot of business to get to, so we won't keep you too long this week. Uh, One quick reminder about the Good Friday event, Steve.
2: Yes. So we do have uh, Liturgy of the Forsaken, Which is a a night of storytelling and struggle. And uh, I announced it uh, a couple of weeks ago in my newsletter. And we also have a newsletter now. CXMH has a weekly newsletter. And so it it will just include events, um, early bird announcements on things, some exclusive content. So you can definitely sign up for that. But the. The liturgy event, the, the Good Friday event, is just it's going to be so powerful. Uh, you'll be able to email laments, your confessions, whatever you want to call it, um, into the show, and then we'll have them play without any identifying information um, on air during that that liturgy that we're going to have, uh, which includes our good friend Liz Edmond. So there's a survey online right now on the Facebook page and, and pretty much anywhere that you can find CXMH. Uh, there's a survey where um, we're just trying to get your feedback and make sure this is something that people want to participate in. So if you would go to that survey and click either yes, I will participate, or maybe next time, uh, we would really appreciate it.
1: That's it. We'll put links to the survey and to the newsletter sign-up in the show notes for this episode, so you can just scroll down there on your iTunes app or go to cxmhpodcast.com and look at the show notes uh, to make it nice and easy awesome. So we'll, uh, we'll let you get right into the episode here. Enjoy our episode with Jason Michelli. Hi, this is Walter Eggers of the We Rad Dads podcast, where I provide wisdom, wellness,
2: support, and resources for non-traditional families. And you're listening to the CXMH podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. Prepare to meet the intersection of emotional health, Christianity, and positivity. Trust me, you're in good hands. Jason, this book, oh my gosh, I know we're going to interview and talk about it, but I love it, dude. It's so good. Thanks.
3: It is
1: Thanks. good. Thanks a lot. It is good. I couldn't stop reading it once I started over the weekend. I know. Weekend.
3: Well, that's just because I sent it to you on Saturday, and you were interviewing me on Monday. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's well, exactly sure, right. but <laughs> I could have pretended like I read it.
2: <laughs> how funny.
1: All right, I'm here, as always, with Steve Austin, my co-host. Steve, how are you doing this week?
2: I'm good, buddy. How about you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited about this interview. Loved this book. Uh, really excited to have Jason Michelli here. Jason, how Hello. are you doing? I'm good.
3: I'm very good. Excellent, in fact. Good. Excellent, in fact.
1: That's awesome. Good. Jason, you studied theology at UVA, and you're an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, correct?
3: I am, yes. Perfect.
1: Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself, if if you would.
2: Oh, <laughs> gosh. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and start question. with the importance of sprinkling instead of dunking.
3: Uh, yeah, so what's important about me? I, uh, I, I'm i a Methodist pastor. I came to the faith as a teenager. Um, had a conversionary experience. Uh, right before I went to college, when I was at UVA, I kind of matched my spiritual experience with kind of an intellectual fascination with Christian theology. Um, and so I went on to seminary. Not because I wanted to be a minister, but just because I wanted to keep uh, thinking and writing and reading about uh, theology. And, I, you know, I was required to work in a church. And uh, eventually, after I stopped feeling quite as ridiculous, I uh, just realized that, you know, I was bearing some fruit in it. Um, so that's who I am. I married my high school sweetheart. We have two boys, uh, Gabriel and Alexander. Uh, and uh, we live just outside DC.
1: Perfect. And right before we started this, we heard a little bit uh parenting by Steve. How would you uh critique his parenting skills there? <laughs> Whatever.
0: <laughs> what a jerk. I'm
1: just kidding. I don't have kids yet, so uh I get to make fun <laughs> of oh, the parenting wow. there. Hey, yeah. I lay down the law with my dog, I'll have you know.
2: <laughs> he is it's an adventure. It is the greatest joy and the hardest work you'll ever do. Yes.
1: Oh, Fair Fair yes. Enough. I concur. Mm-hmm. Jason is also the author of the the new book, Cancer is Funny, Keeping Faith in Stage Serious Chemo. And this episode will be a little bit different than what we normally do. Uh, it's not necessarily exactly focused on mental health. But let me tell you, when I was reading this book, there was so many things that I thought, man, this is applicable. This is relevant to a lot of what we talk about. And I just loved it. I thought it was hilarious and touching and just on point with a lot of things.
2: It is a book that absolutely anybody, everybody should read and anybody will get something out of. I mean, I, dude, I laughed so much at so much of the inappropriate humor and appreciated it so much. And then I wept my eyes out in parts the just the from the dad side of reading this book and thinking about Mm. walking through this journey that you walked through as a dad and your kids I mean yes as a husband too but my gosh the the fear that had to grip you at times it lord have mercy I cried my eyes out no Uh, you're making me cry a little bit now yeah no dude it's it's fantastic it really I'm, – I'm serious. You listeners need to go pick this book up. It's so good.
1: Jason, will you give us just a, a short summary of what you walked through uh, throughout the book, the things it, it talks about, uh, before we get into some specifics, just so listeners know what what we're talking about?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, so about two years ago, um, I started having uh, kind of recurring uh kind of terrible abdominal pains, um, that I initially just chalked up to, you know, bad diet or ulcers, or, you know, maybe a, a bug that I got in Latin America on a mission trip. Um, but they, you know, I would go to the doctor and they wouldn't find anything and then it would go away for a while and I would ignore it and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, two advents ago, I, um, just eventually just went to a GI doctor and, uh, he noticed that I had some, you know, lumps on the back of my head and things like that. He ordered a CAT scan, um, told me I hear from him in a week or so. And, um, I, I, heard from him that night and he gives me the call, you know, and asks if I'm sitting down. Um, and so I find out, uh, the pain was, you know, part of my intestine had inverted itself. Um, and that was most likely caused by a tumor. And so I went into surgery immediately. Um, wake up to discover that you know the tumor they've removed is about 10 by 10 inches long and wide, mm-hmm. um, and that they're waiting for the results of the biopsy, but it most likely fell into one of these five really rare lymphomas. Um, and so the book kind of charts my um, my coming to uh, awareness of this and then going through the intense chemo, um, that I went through for about a year. Um, and so that, so it's, yeah, so it charts my, uh, kind of existential and theological, uh, and personal experience going through that. Um, and it does so kind of in a funny way because there's lots of absurd things, uh, about, about being sick and being ill, um, that strike you, but but also that's just kind of my narrative frame on, on the world in general. Um, and it's the hard thing about having the word "funny" in the title—is it like I? I don't want people to think I'm funny all the time because I just—it just occurred to
2: me that none of that was funny. So, <laughs> but the book is hilarious. I will tell you. I was nervous when I pick up a book and "funny" is in the title. I'm like, God, I really hope this dude is funny because, <laughs> wow, you know, it's just sort of implied that this is going to be funny. And it, my word, it's. it it reminds me and i hope this is a compliment it would be a compliment for me but it it has the feel of anne lamont who's one of Mm. my absolute favorites at handling something that is so hard and so tragic but with so much humor i mean I, i was blown away at how you handled that story
3: yeah yeah and it's i mean so i mean you guys if you read the book you know but i mean when I, so I, I was diagnosed with mantle cell lymphoma, which is like incredibly rare uh, lymphoma that usually only affects really old men. Um, and so when I first became sick, you know, I was just I was in the pulpit one Sunday and then the next day I was gone um, and the church didn't see me again for several months. Um, but when I did run into people, I was made aware of how much unresolved grief they had from you know, cancer or some other kind of disease affecting someone in their family or themselves, and so I kind of made the decision at the beginning that I was going to, I was going to write about this um, as openly and as honestly and as rawly as as I could, as a way of helping other people think about um, how to do it as a Christian.
2: You yeah. succeeded.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what I enjoyed most about the book, and and was most surprising, I think, is because you don't take away any of the emotional weight of it you're not making light of what is obviously a very serious illness and and that many people have had experience with in their family or whatever, but also infusing it with humor because there there is so much that you found humor in, but you don't you you walk that balance really really well, which I thought was was really well done
3: yeah and, and the the underside of the humor for me too is and, and I, I kind of leave it understated, but you know, there there are times when I think something like tragedy or just kind of intense suffering uh, and loneliness, you know, it, it calls God into question in the sense that, you know, the joke's on Christians for believing. Um, and so that's kind of, so cancer's funny, ha-ha, but it's also like, oh my gosh, we people who believe in a good God look ridiculous
2: and the joke's on us.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, and then from a... Just from a, a guy who's been in ministry for several years myself, it's so good to see, a, a, you know, clergy being as, my gosh, as transparent. Uh, as you are on so many different levels and not being um, what you would call officious and tight sphinctered, you know it was my (laughs) word you really did read it dude I did read it yeah Yeah, we
1: both we both have a a page full of notes that we made independently of each other uh, things to talk about
3: I mean that is on the first page so I don't know if you get credit for that (laughs) yeah I, I think there's this I don't know why but I mean we all believe that Jesus was fully human and we we have this unspoken belief that those of us who believe in Jesus should appear to be less than fully human most of the time. Um, especially clergy. And I, and I don't think that's very helpful in general, but I knew it wasn't helpful for me. Uh, when I got sick, I got a lot of casseroles, but I also got a lot of cancer books and all, you know, a lot of them were just filled with sentimentality and, and cliches that were not at all helpful to me. Um, and, and, and like, if I wasn't a pastor, I could see what profound damage they could do.
1: Yeah, and you, you wrote a bit about the cliches about fear. You listed some of them as well as a, a part that I put a star next to where you talked about faith as kind of this cheap optimism versus faith a, as hope and that difference. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: I don't know where I wrote about that. but um, I, I mean, I, I do remember writing about how we believe in a God who works by Resurrection and and you know the opposite of resurrection is is predictability, um, and so you know our faith is no guarantee that things are going to work out for us, and and often I think too what faith does is afflict you with just the right kind of nightmares, you know that faith like my cancer threw me into this community of people, many of whom were children who were, were suffering terrible diagnoses and and had no hope and. My faith wasn't, you know, a comfort in those situations. It it just made me mindful of how much suffering there is in the world and how much this world is just a shadow of what God intends for creation. So I don't know if that's what you're going for with faith and fear. but
1: Yeah, that is that is what I was going for there. You talked about kind of an optimism of, in some of those cancer books and things where it was, you know, my faith makes me think, oh, this will all be fine or or things like that, as well as. I almost laughed out loud at uh, there was an orderly named Nathaniel who, uh, when he learned you were a pastor, he assumed that because you had the Holy Spirit, that you wouldn't feel any pain.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which, God bless those Christians from Ethiopia.
2: <laughs> mm, God bless them.
1: Yeah, and I think that's relatable to so many people in in physical illness or mental illness or or what have you, where people assume because you're a Christian that somehow it makes worldly problems less, right? That you're not going to hurt as, as badly or that you can kind of just skate through those things because you have this optimistic hope um, and that somehow it, it eliminates part of that suffering, which I think you hit it is somewhat damaging because then people think like, no, this hurts like hell. There must be something wrong with my faith.
3: Yeah, I, I'm, and I was thinking about the connections before I talked with you guys about mental health and and cancer. And and for me, I I think it's you know, they both come with a stigma, particularly if you're a Christian. You know that the, there is the expectation that you're not going to call bullshit on other people's platitudes and cliches. Yeah, um, yes, that the platitudes and cliches they want to hand you um, are going to fit you, and there, there's the, the the expectation that you know faithfulness equals cheeriness mm. and so you're not going to dump your your shit on
2: other people yeah um, that there yeah. are days with cancer i'm assuming as with mental health that you can't just choose joy yeah exactly mm-hmm. um and and that it, it, which is I, I don't say it
3: exactly in the book but you know like we believe that god took flesh and lived among us and that when god did that we responded by killing him and so woven into our confession of faith is like the very worst thing we could possibly do so like why we bother pretending about our other like faults and fears and foibles is just absolute nonsense and maybe like like the opposite of faith um and, and so I, I i don't know i don't know why we have this need to protect god or our faith from our genuine
2: feelings yeah That's so good. That's so good. Um, Oh, goodness. Where do we go from here? Oh, I know. We'll go go funny for a second. So, Jason, in the book, you talk about pubic hair wigs. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yep. And now, are we talking about wigs for your pubic area, or are we talking about wigs for your head made of pubic hair? I just need to clarify. Uh, That would... (laughs) I can
3: imagine that would be a important distinction for the purchaser, uh, to be clear on. Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, Does that, like, come with a belt? Like- <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, that you can buy them the, where they Velcro on uh, or they snap on. How, how you get the snaps onto your actual skin, oh. I, I was uh, not clear on. Oh,
1: man. Huh.
3: But, yeah, so, yeah, Merkins are pubic hair wigs to, to give you the
2: appearance of pubic hair once you have lost it. Um, that is amazing. There's a whole. I'm so glad that it's not a wig for your head <laughs> made of pubic hair, because I mean, that, that was my initial reading.
3: That's probably a secondary market, but
1: um, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we'll so, end it there. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, no, just... You're welcome, Robert. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, so, so they're they're
3: there to to give you the yeah you know, your former appearance of being you know, I don't know. A fully adult sexual creature which the loss of which does more damage to your self-identity as a man than you would expect oh um, no I bet and, I, and it's like something you never like you never hear guys talk about um, you sure. hear about how breast cancer affects women or ovarian cancer affects women but you don't really hear much about men um, hmm. yeah so uh, not funny but
2: still funny <laughs> okay so one little section um, where you talk about your, your mortality and, and coming to face with it. You say this, no, when I say cancer is funny, I mean that your every pretense falls away right along with your pubic hair. It makes you absolutely vulnerable to others, both to their fragile, pitying stares and to their sincere gestures of support. You would proudly have shrugged off before cancer. Cancer refuses to let you stand at a comfortable adjacency to life. It announces your mortality, our species number one subject of avoidance in a style as ugly and obvious as spray on tan or a title loan sign. So you do cover this with with so many funny spots. There are so many points where I laughed throughout it, but there are... So many places where I cried openly. Talk to us about. Let's talk about coming face to face with your mortality, and and suffering, and and what that I, I think what that looks like when when you do come face to face with it, and then what you would say to maybe people who are in that journey, either their own their own suffering or. Um, you know, somebody who's lost a child or lost a a sibling or someone close to them, um, because of the c word. What do you What do you say to them? Nothing.
3: Mm. I mean, I, I that's my. Don't say anything. Yeah, and just and just be with them. I mean, that's my go-to response. That's so, so. good. And that probably would have been my response, as, I mean, just as a pastor before I got sick, but I know firsthand now that that's the best posture to take. I mean, part of what I write about in the book is that I think the most Christian thing to do in the face of suffering, whether it's mental illness or tragedy or cancer or, or what have you, is 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 rage, That that it's so. And, and rage against explanations. Mm-hmm. If there's an explanation for why someone has this ailment that completely derails or debilitates their life, you know, if, if there is an explanation for that, then that's what we should be worshiping. And the God that we do worship is not worthy of our worship. Um, Man, that's so good. I mean, so I, I really think, you know, everyone gives shit to Job's friends about saying the wrong things. Um, And I do in the book, too, but they show up and they sit with him. And that's more than what a lot of people in our culture are willing to do uh, because of our fear of mortality. And so I I think, I mean, the first thing you say is nothing or, you know, I'm here or I love you or I don't know what to say. Um, I think those are always, always the best things to say. I think if you're in a position to do so where you're not like. Coercing someone into your worldview, I think it's appropriate to insist as I do often, you know that God's not doing this to you You know, don't listen to like dumbass Christians to quote another good book
2: Um, (laughs) (laughs) My friend, yes
3: (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean to insist that like no God like God doesn't do stuff like this Like, that's not the God we find in Jesus Christ. Like, God suffers stuff like this. God doesn't dole it out. Yeah, I mean, to insist on that. And then, but also, like, because part of the trajectory I follow in the book is that, you know, I began my experience, like, insisting. And reminding my own congregation that I never have believed that God does stuff like this to people for a reason or to teach them a lesson or that, like, I'll be a better minister later on because I went through this. Like, that's all bullshit I said. But that didn't stop me from my lowest points asking the very questions that I've heard other people ask about, like, why are you doing this to me, God, and blah, blah, blah. So my theological perspective was one thing. But, you know, the experience of suffering— Put me through that same existential cycle of grief uh, that everyone goes through, and so and that and that gives me some empathy towards how people want to narrate their experience um, and so i'm less i guess i 'm probably less eager to correct people 's theology when they're suffering than I was before, um, because I found myself asking questions that even rationally I knew I, I didn't i didn't actually think
2: yeah, I think that's such an important point that no matter how well-educated you are or deeply theological you are or where you are on the spectrum of theology, that suffering is universal and and that the cycles of grief are universal. We all experience them, you know, a, a, no matter what we think or believe or what, that That's such an important point. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, I love what you said about Job's friends. They showed up and this is one of my favorite things that I ever read about the book of Job, and it's when they show up and they're just being with him, right? They show up and they're silent for a number of days, and everything's kind of going all right, and then they start offering these explanations of why God's doing this or whatever, and that's when, you know, things kind of go downhill where Job starts arguing and, and getting angry at God and things, and I think that's such an interesting point that when people offer offer these platitudes or cliches or what have you, that that's... I mean, as you said, like not the most helpful. I mean, people who are suffering a lot of times just need people to sit with them and be in it with them. Mm-hmm. I, one of the, the hardest I laughed, I think, during the book is you were talking about people's responses, people who would send you messages. Uh, and mm-hmm. there was one, I love this one, is from a guy. He said, I thought you were a dick in high school, but I'm sending you positive energy now, <laughs> <laughs> which I yep. thought was awesome. And then I also thought that the hospital chaplain who came in and and prayed with you, but focused mostly on eternity um, was a really interesting, a lot of these, I think, kind of revolved around people's responses to you and whether or not they were, they were helpful, things Mm -hmm. like that. And then there's also a nurse who you asked how to get through chemotherapy and you were looking for some practical advice, but because she knew you were a pastor, all she, all she had for you was pray as if that wasn't, (laughs) you know, on your mind already. Yeah. What was the best response that you had? I mean, did anybody come and just say, hey, I'm here with you. I, I have nothing. I, I don't have any answers for this, but I just want to be with you in this.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I so I, I dedicate some of the people I dedicate the book to. I, well, I dedicate the book to the people of Aldersgate, which is my church, um, because I was so proud of them for not giving me any uh, Hallmark cards that, you know, you know. Things work together for good. You know, like none of that stuff. Yeah. None of no effing lemonade. (laughs) Yep. No, like no, no one from my church tried to fix my feelings or tell me, you know, how, what I should be believing. Um, no one tried to paper over how I felt with cliches. None of them tried to, you know, convince me that it was all going to work out or that it was all for a reason. And I mean, they showed up. I mean, they, they like took me to chemo. They sat with me there. they, you know caught me when i passed out they you know wiped me off when i threw up they they
2: were just they were just there and that's that's all that really mattered to me yeah okay so one of the things that you say in here that stuck out to me so much, and I want—I I would love for you to expound on this and give us some more of the why behind this, um, but you're talking about going through chemo, and, and you talk about laughter being the, the best medicine, and then you you make this statement, joy is the most unmistakable indication of God's presence.
3: Mm. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Oh uh, well, it, I, it, it's not my quote. It's a quote from someone else. Um, no, I, I do think that. Let's see, that I believe with the ancient church fathers that who God is most determinatively is love with a capital L. Not that like God is loving or good, but that God is goodness itself or yeah. love itself. And I think part of what's correlative of that is that God does not need to create that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is already a community of love sufficient unto himself. Um, and so that, you know, our createdness is just sheer gratuity for the delight of God. Um, and so for me then, you know, whoever God is at God's core, if that makes, if we can speak that way, um, mm-hmm. God is love and joy and delight. And, and I think laughter certainly has to be an attribute of that. And so kind of my theological take on on humor and, and laughter is just that everyone Christian and non-believer or non-believer assumes that suffering leads the sufferer into some sort of, you know, deeper state of enlightenment. I mean, Buddhism's premised on that, right? So so everyone assumes that, but, you know, if, if God really is delight and love and joy, then it follows for me that the experience of suffering shouldn't leave you wailing and gnashing your teeth, that at some point that experience of suffering gives way to this uh, almost like a second naivete of, of laughter and joy. So that's that's kind of my theological justification for writing a funny that's book. It's good. About okay. <laughs> yeah. So, no, it's fantastic. But I do believe it too. But it is, I mean, it's both the justification for why I'm writing a book with an offensive title, um, but it, but I also do believe it too.
1: Yeah. I think one of the the other things I found really interesting, is you wrote a bit about how we like to think of faith as a a rock or a steady thing, but that you wrote a a bit about how your faith is ever-changing and how what that looks like in contrast to our faith being just this immovable rock. Can you talk about that a bit?
3: Yeah, I mean, and I think it's something that Christians forget easily. That Christianity is not a collection of ideas uh, or propositions or thoughts, that it's living into our baptism, which is itself an entrance into this person that we call Jesus Christ. And so it's even apart from us believing in the incarnation, our faith is incarnational. And so it's always going to be changing because the contours of our life are going to be changing. And that means, you know, in one situation of your life, you can read, you know, the story of Jesus saying, you know, which is easier to forgive or to to be healed you know and, and so like in one situation of life I'll preach that and talk about forgiveness of sins but then as soon as I find out like I may very well die soon it's the healing that seems a lot more compelling to me it's yeah i mean faith faith can never be changing because you're like
2: journeying with Jesus So good. One of my friends, um, Stephanie Gates, talks about faith being like a moving river. And she says, you know, a lot of times she says, I find myself like standing at the at the river's edge and I'm just sort of watching it go by. And I think okay, maybe I, I'm, I'll journey out and just put my big toe in today, you know, and there's other days that I find myself standing right smack in the middle, but that it's, it's ever flowing. It's ever evolving. I'm always learning something new and my perspective is always changing. And I think that's like, there's, there's so much permission there. in what you said to, to be real and to, to not have to have all these black and white answers to a lot of of really gray questions um, or to just not know the answer at all. But to, I don't know, I, I think that's, it's so great to hear that from a pastor to say, you know, that things are going to change based on your circumstances. Your views may be different today than they are in five years. And I hope so.
3: Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I mean, for me, it's just, uh, I, I... There's no need to protect a god who responds to Good Friday with Easter. I mean, there's just, uh, there's just no need to take ourselves so seriously. There's no need to protect God. There's no need to protect our 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 faith. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I mean, for me, like, it's. I guess I'm, bardian enough that I, I don't believe in faith as a journey. It's more like it's God's journey towards us. And for me, mm. I'm you know dispositionally, I'm still a person who would never choose. To be a Christian, I just feel pursued by God uh, for good and ill, Um, Mm. and in and in the movement of that pursuit, your landscape changes, and so faith is is always changing too.
1: Yeah,
2: Jason Michelli, the theologian, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) that's good stuff, dude. That's really good. Wow, that's there's a lot to think about there. My goodness. Okay, so another portion that I love is it's sort of in this same vein you're talking about you as a person and you at a soul level and and you say I act like everything's all right when it's not I Mm -hmm. pretend me and mine are happy when maybe we're not I act like I've got my shit together when even when it's falling apart all around me I project strength when I feel weak and I wear other people's projections of me like mask I don't keep it real I pretend I play I hide just like I'll bet you do What is it like being that guy and being the pastor of a church? It's, you know, I don't spell it out in the book, but
3: what's interesting is that that was that whole first section of going to the dermatologist story. uh, That was my last, it was actually a sermon. It was my last sermon I preached before I got sick. And so in some measures, you know, my experience with cancer two weeks after preaching that sermon was tearing away the facade that I was critiquing in that sermon. But to answer your question, I, I think um, I people don't understand it, but I, I often like to say that I am most authentically myself in the pulpit. And so I think, I guess I take the burden of my ordination seriously enough that even though it goes against my nature, I try to be as honest and truthful as possible in, in preaching and so I think I, I'm I'm someone who you know hides and pretends and puts up pretenses and it, just like everyone else does, but were it not for my submission to a community that holds me accountable to my baptism, I, I would be so much worse.
2: How do we get other pastors to get there, <laughs> to be their most authentic self in the pulpit? How does that even happen, and how can we bottle it and prescribe it? <laughs> I. <sighs> I think it's, I mean, for me, it's twofold. So I I
3: really do. I mean, I think you have to, I mean, you have to believe this shit enough to know that it's worth people writing complaint letters to the bishop about you, which happens on a weekly basis for me. Nice. Um, (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah, I I have a permanent record, I've been told. Um, Very cool. So I I think, I mean, you, you have to, I think you have to be compelled enough by your sense of calling to make it, to realize that it's worth it. Um, and worth it in a sense that you're not just like being exhibitionist for the sake of being exhibitionist. So I so I think on the one hand, that's true. And then, you know, I've been blessed, a word I seldom use. The other pastor here uh, at my church is the pastor who first brought me into the faith when I was a teenager. Um, and so he, he provides the cover for me to be able to do what I think is most appropriate. That's um, fantastic. Yeah, and his own... And, I mean, his own brother had mental health and addiction issues and ultimately died um, homeless, you know, out in the woods in Florida somewhere about 20 years ago or so. And so his name is Dennis. And so Dennis doesn't – he doesn't take off the mask in the same way that I do, but he, but he still does it and insists, you know, that that's part of what being fully alive and fully Christian entails.
1: Oh. Fantastic. Absolutely. You also wrote a bit about how hard it was for you to pray uh, both before you got sick and then while you were sick. As someone who also is not, I wouldn't say praying is in like my top 10 skill (laughs) set. I loved that part related to it. And I think you offered a really interesting take on the process of praying. Can you unpack that a bit for us? Can you? hmm,
3: What do you want me to say exactly?
1: Uh, well, that would be a weird interview. Uh, no, I just, I guess you, you talked about how praying, even if we're bad at it, isn't necessarily. Okay, all
3: right. Now I know where you're you're tracking. Okay. Yeah. yeah no, I I'm 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 terrible. Like I'm terrible at prayer. Like I'm awful at it. I don't have the personal discipline for it. I I get distracted easily. I get, you know, I saw. I mean, I'm constantly in my head already, and so to have like another conversation going on in there um, too easily bleeds into I'm just really talking to myself. And I'm post-liberal enough to be suspicious of how easily prayer can really just be a way of baptizing our own conscience and wants and desires. Wow. And and a language by which we create God in our own image. And so, um, and and I'm aware that I use that as a theological justification against something I'm not very good at. Yeah, so I'm 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 terrible at it, but I found it even more difficult uh, when I was sick, just because you know at times during chemo, your like your brain just feels like cottony, so it's it's hard to get any kind of articulate thoughts going, and and just like the distraction of being sick and in pain just made it really hard for me to pray, and so like on the one hand I relied on the prayers of other people who told me they were praying for me, but You know, I took solace in uh, what Paul talks about in Romans eight, which is one of my favorite texts. That whenever we do pray, you know, so Paul says none of us know how to pray, Uh, and then Paul reassures us that whenever we do pray, it's the Spirit praying through us. And really, like that's the only way that little people like us could ever bridge the gap from Creator to creature, is by the Creator allowing us to do so. Right. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of freedom and grace in knowing that whatever we're praying in some measure it's the spirit praying through us which leads you know also to the perspective that like there's no such thing as a bad prayer and that like even you know Joel Osteen telling you to pray for a parking space is in some ways okay I I don't know how I feel about that oh I'm
2: so glad I have permission for that but I I
3: mean (laughs) you kind of get painted into that corner with that perspective but um but yeah I mean it's and even I'm like I think there's the expectation that I'm a better prayer than I was before uh, because of my experience. And, and I don't know that that's true. I'm good at praying in worship um, and I don't script the prayers out or anything like that. And so there, there is something I think about the expectation of the community waiting on me to pray makes me that I'm only able to do it well. in a, like where I'm, I, I need to meet the expectations of other believers. If that makes sense?
1: Yeah.
2: I totally get that. As the worship guy at the church, I totally get that. I don't know that other people will get it, but I get it.
1: Yeah, actually a while back, I decided that I was only, like whenever I would pray, I would do it out loud because like you said, I'm so much in my own head that I start praying, but then I veer off into just thinking about lunch or I don't converse with anybody else just through my thoughts because my thoughts are absolute nonsense most of the time. So praying out loud was a way that I tried to counteract that. Because then you have yeah. to make coherent sense.
3: Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm a big believer too in, in the form prayers of, of the saints who've gone before us. That, I mean, I, this isn't really germane to your show, but I mean, prayer is twofold, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's dialogue with God through the Spirit. But like the other side of it is that it's trading in how to speak Christian correctly. And so I, I, do, I, I do think prayer in that sense is important as well. That it's it's
2: forming our language properly. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, changing gears here. Uh, <laughs> the yeah, that section, wasn't funny at all. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. We're about to get there. The section on being handed a sack of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Jason. Oh my. The just the fact that this happened, that this scenario actually happened to a human being that i know (laughs) what in the world dude
1: oh my gosh can we get because i did man it's my like skeptical side did this happen
3: (laughs) um it did happen yes the chronology's (laughs) a little um that whole like first section uh, um the chronology's streamlined a little bit to make it sure. more clear well, to the yeah. reader yeah um so yeah i mean so it's all true the, the ordering of it isn't quite as um yeah, smooth well. as i have in the book yeah but yeah i mean oh and, and i got like four different bills from them too so <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> classic um LabCorp is like the worst organization in the world like every no, everything everything people say about the irs <laughs> it's true of LabCorp. core yeah no so like i i i like so if for your listeners who haven't read my book, but it is available on Amazon, so go buy it now. That's
2: um, right. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, well, yes. that, that'll be the but, teaser that now everybody has to go buy it because we're not going to we're not going to go into the story. Oh so.
2: my goodness! But here's what I, here's where I would like to go with this to to sort of bring it back to to our purposes here from a selfish for selfish reasons. So. There's lots of people that have been handed a sack of shit, you know, in, in one way or another. Um, and for our folks, you know, it, it is people that have been affected by mental illness in in any variety of ways. Um if if you were to give them one nugget from from your own experiences um that, that might apply to life in general or life with mental illness, what do you where do you start? What's the starting point when when that sack of shit lands in your lap? What do you do? Where do you start?
3: Mm. Yeah. I So I think in one of the first moves that I made, because I, I think my first round of chemo was right around Ash Wednesday. So I already was like thinking about Lent and all of that as a pastor. So I, I, I think, I mean, there's no sack of shit bigger than a cross, right? Mm-hmm. And so frequently at christmas especially we talk about how god took flesh to in christ to you know share in our sufferings um mm-hmm. as human creatures but for me what was important was oh my god i've just been handed this like really really terrible diagnosis i may or may not die you know my kid's childhood has just been irreparably damaged now my wife is grieving and is like in today is still convinced she's going to be a widow by your ex and so it became really important for me to to flip that and to, to see Jesus as someone whose sufferings I could share in. So to use, you know, so Jesus doesn't just give us a model for how to live, is how, you know, mainland Christians like to put it a lot of times. But Jesus gives us a way to suffer and, and to die as well, that that template that Jesus's life gives us isn't just for how do we welcome the stranger or how do we treat the poor, it's how do we respond to what afflicts us? How do we respond to the proximity of death? And, yeah, is that is that helpful? I don't know. If that's
2: yeah, right. no, that's yeah. so I, I don't think I've ever thought about Jesus as a model for how to suffer or how to die. I, and that's ridiculous. Maybe we do think about it at I don't know, Black Friday or something, but I mean, not black Black Friday, really did I just say that? <laughs> Maybe we think about it at Good Friday, <laughs> but, And I think that's what the Gospels are. I mean,
3: I I mean, I I mean, he's at the Last Supper. I mean, he's like, take all the theology aside from it. Like one of the things that Jesus is doing is giving, you know, his friends a story by which they can understand his death and remember him, Mm. you know, which I think is an act of compassion. You know, that Jesus is making sure that his mother is going to be cared for while he's on the cross, that Jesus is making sure that he's forgiven those people he needs to forgive before he dies yeah i mean there's so much
2: that that is such a i mean what that's you just dropped one tiny little nugget right there but that jesus (laughs) had people he needed to forgive
3: yeah and 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 i know as a pastor who does like 50 funerals a year like i know that exchange of forgiveness is i mean to not do that does so much damage to families And, and i would think that that's particularly relevant for place where mental illness is concerned, just from my own personal experience that there's a lot of forgiving
2: that needs to be done sometimes. Oh yeah, there's so much misunderstanding that goes on that causes so much
3: yep. pain. Yep. And I and I mean, given what your show is about, I'd be remiss if I didn't so I wrote as honestly in Raleigh as I possibly could in my book, but there is one person in my life who suffers bipolar disorder. And that made this person, the way, so I, we've had a lot of ups and downs with that person. And we've had to like create boundaries with that person, cut off relationships for a time with that person. And the way they responded to my illness was not appropriate, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, and, and we, we had to keep that person away from us um, just for the sake of our family going through my cancer. And, and that relationship is still so fragile and raw. And I didn't know how to write about that person in a way that was both honest, but wouldn't come across as hurtful. And and so like,
2: so tough.
3: Yeah. And so, I mean, it's, so that person is missing in the book and it would be a lie. I don't know if it would be a lie, but it would be it would be a deficiency if I didn't acknowledge that to you guys in this context.
2: Mm. Mm, Thanks for
3: sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a lot of ways in which I think mental health is, is trickier than cancer. Well, they're both
2: so very misunderstood, you know, even with this being nearly 2017, they're both so, so misunderstood. And man, if we just had a cure for them both,
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm yeah,
3: but it's,
2: I mean, like, I had a tumor on my
3: neck the size of a golf ball. You know, like, you can see that. You know, so like, mental illness is, is something you, you can't always see unless you have eyes for it. And I think it makes it harder for families often. Sure.
1: Yeah. Well, before we go, I wanted to ask, and it's, it's in there actually as a thing that so many people asked you that maybe you didn't appreciate, but I, I feel like I should. How did this journey impact your faith? Um, or you can tell me that's a dumb question and and just leave.
3: Okay, bye. <laughs> no, um, yeah. See, this is the problem when you write a book. People think like ugh, they just assume you have a ready-made answer that sounds enlightened. But I, I think for me, so the book is done. But this is like something that I still live with. So I just had a another scan a couple days ago, and I'm waiting for the results. And I do chemo every month, and um, so it's still something that we live with, and it's something my wife in particular lives with more than I do, I think, or just the burden of it. But um, I think what I took away from it most, um, or what's impacted me the most, is on the one hand, I, I I really do believe that the language of Christianity can lift the luggage in a way that no other language can do. That I, I believe this faith in Christ can get you through the crucible of suffering in a way that I, I think, you know, just our secular language is impoverished of. Um, so, I, so I really, I'm, I don't know if I'm a, like a stronger believer, but I'm a stronger believer that the language of our faith can serve you well if you use it in these kinds of contexts. And then, on the other hand, like I, I've, like I, I mentioned before, but I was blown away by the faithfulness of my congregation. And so, one of the things I say in the book is that you know Christians don't have an exclamation for suffering; that we have a community of care. Um, and so,
2: I have greater faith in that than I did before. Yeah, I think that's incredible. That that's such a hard time, and I um, think would be such a a fearful time in in so many ways that that can further reinforce your faith in in Christ, but also in the church, that that the church, as many things as we want to talk about, you know, bad about the church, that the church of Jesus Christ is still the hope of the world. That yeah. says a lot.
3: Yeah, I, I, mean, I mentioned in the book, I mean, the world is filled with people who ask you how you're doing, but don't really want to hear the answer. And for all of its faults and all the gossipiness, and like all the time we waste talking about absolutely nothing in church, more times than not, like people in church, either really do want to know the answer, or like they at least know that like they're expected to want to know the answer. Um, and I think that's—I mean—that's a unique. I mean, uh, Thomas Lynch, the poet, you know, he talks about how Christians are the people who show up, um, and the people in my church showed up for me, um, and I—that's—that's that's an uh, an epiphany and a, and a, a faith that I, I didn't have before
1: so good. Well, hey, we want to thank you for being on and talking to us today. Sure. If you want to connect with Jason, you can find him on Twitter at Jason Michelli, or at TamedCynic.org. Uh, he's also one of the hosts of the podcast Crackers and Grape Juice, which is a great listen. You can go find that on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts steve austin you can connect with him on social media at i am steve austin or grace is messy.com uh, i'm robert Vore. you can find me at robert vor or robert vorecom thank you guys both especially jason thanks for coming on
3: jason thank you so much man this was oh. just a blast thank you guys thank you very much
1: okay go pick up cancer is funny on amazon or wherever books are sold you won't regret it, it. makes
3: a great gift too
1: yeah Yeah, and I
3: make like I make like nothing on this book, so it's really just me believing in the story. (laughs) It is fantastic. I
2: I am I am a huge critic uh, as a writer myself, and man, this this book is fantastic. It is worth every penny.
1: It's true. You'll laugh, you'll cry. That's the stereotypical thing, right? You, but you will. You'll laugh, but you really will. You will learn. It'll be great. And Steve and I actually make literally nothing off this recommendation, so we're not lying. (laughs)
3: I'll I'll have to re-examine that for you.
1: All right.
0: Thanks Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at cxmhpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.